brothers and sisters, walk in faith because God has wonderfully prepared for us the salvation we enjoy. One of the great delights of Thanksgiving weekend is that the wonderful food many times does not really end. There's a bountiful feast on Thanksgiving Day, and then there are the leftovers that follow. If you love leftovers, you have one Percy Spencer to be thankful for. Over 70 years ago, Percy Spencer was studying radio waves when he realized the little metal box that had microwave radio waves in it had melted the chocolate candy bar that was in his pocket. Spencer had unintentionally discovered what became the microwave, and our lives were changed. Accidental discoveries are wonderful, yet they are accidents. They do not reveal the wisdom, the love, the intentionality of that figure orchestrating things for that purpose. Dear dear church, Jesus' coming is no accident. Dear Christian, your salvation, it is no accident. So let us walk in faith because God has wonderfully prepared for us the salvation we enjoy. I invite you to follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. Beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited And redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, 
will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. May God write the truths of his eternal word on our hearts this morning. Three ways that we will see how our salvation is no accident, but God has wondrously prepared for us this salvation we enjoy. First, we will see that our salvation demands what I would say is true faith. This is kind of different, or or it's not that there is false faith. Perhaps a better way of saying it would be authentic faith, life-changing faith. Our salvation demands authentic faith. We see this in verses 57 to 66. Now, if you're jumping in with us here on the back end of Luke chapter 1, allow me to catch you up with all that's been going on to this point in this gospel. What has happened is Luke, the author of this gospel, has taken the reader on this back and forth between two birth announcements. The first one, the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth, though they are both advanced in years, they will miraculously conceive a child. And then the angel Gabriel goes to Mary and announces that she, though a young girl and though a virgin and just betrothed to be married, she will miraculously conceive a child. Then this leads to songs and excited responses on on the parts of all parties, except on the part of Zechariah. He originally did not believe this angel, Gabriel, who appeared, and so Gabriel made him mute as a form of, of disciplining him because he did not believe the words of the Lord who had spoke to him. So now we reach the end of Luke 1, and it's time for the birth of the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and next week we'll see the birth of the son of Mary, Jesus, our Lord, in in, in Luke chapter 2. But Luke wants us to know is how the central players in this story, how they understood all of these events that were transpiring regarding the coming of Jesus. He did not write this in order that the birth of Jesus might be left up to you and I to try to figure out what, if any, significance it had. No, he records these words that we may know who Jesus is, that we may know why Jesus has come, and that we may know what the birth of Jesus demands of us. This is why we get not just the facts as if these are entries in an encyclopedia with dates of birth and who was ruling and all of these things. No, we get songs, we get prayers, we get rejoicing because lives are changed because of this birth and the announcement of it. Now, as we consider how our salvation demands authentic faith, perhaps the most authentic thing, or perhaps the most significant thing that you need to hear as we enter into this passage is that God keeps His promises. 
Now, I'm going to re rewind back. If you have your Bible open, you're welcome to turn back there to Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, but I'll read it out loud. But you remember, uh, picking up in verse 11 of Luke 1, the priest Zechariah, older in age, kind of running out the days on his service in the temple. He's serving, or serving at the temple. He's serving in the temple on this special day where he had been chosen by Lot. And then verse 11 tells us, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now if we fast forward to the beginning of our passage this morning, Luke 1, verse 57, we simply read in verse 57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Amidst Zechariah's unbelief that his wife could have a child, amidst the biological scientific difficulties Zechariah and Elizabeth would have faced with them being so advanced in years, God kept His promises. And that might be what you need to hear today. Now when we talk of God keeping His promises, what is meant by this? Is it promises that we think God has given us to fulfill our dreams and our desires for our lives? As if the Bible perhaps uh, could be a fortune cookie that you open to give direction and purpose to you. No, these are promises that God has established for us. Promises of God not to abandon His people. Promises of God to not leave His people alone, even in the midst of uncomfortable, unexpected, unintended trials and hardships. In fact, you could argue that the promises of God and what we see in this passage is that the promises of God towards His people are bound up in His faithfulness in sending His Son. And so as we celebrate Christmas, it is a celebration that God keeps His promises. And perhaps you need to hear that. This at the beginning of the Christmas season, and perhaps at the beginning of a season of uncertainty that you are facing. Now the great way that God keeps His promises is by accomplishing our salvation through His promised Son, Jesus. And so at Christmas we look back at the birth of Jesus and we look forward to the return of Jesus. And in Christ, God promises to guard the hearts of His people in every millisecond and even every millennium until then. And now you might ask, how do you mean God will keep His promises? In fact, I could use greater explanations, Stephen, as to what exactly those promises are. Well, I'm glad you asked. And we will see as we walk through this passage. Now, there's a way that we need to see how our salvation, how it demands authentic faith through the exchange between Zechariah and Elizabeth and their neighbors that have come to their house. Now, I, I want you to see something in this passage. As we've walked through this chapter, who do you think would be the central figure in the birth of John, the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah? Maybe John? Maybe Elizabeth and Zechariah? You would expect it to be them, but this is not exactly what we see in the passage. We're about to reread it, it again and, and reread it carefully. 
The central figure, I believe, in this story in verses 58 to 66 is actually their neighbors who have come to their house for a circumcision party. Which is a strange thing, but maybe that was a thing back then. Look at this. Verse 58, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. So pause here. Apparently, you know, they're coming and they're going to circumcise the child. And, and what that would, would be was a signifying, a reminding that this child is a child of, 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 of the people set apart by God. In one sense, it's, it's a reminder, it's a, it's a trusting in that, yes, God does keep his promises. And this child who has been born, the circumcision that is going to be done, this naming of the child will remind us of this. But this is not exactly what God intends here. Verse 60, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now remember, Zechariah was struck mute by the angel. Apparently he was also struck deaf by the angel because he had to write on signs and uh, do all of that as well to try to communicate. So they asked Zechariah, and he asked for a writing tablet, and he writes out, his name is John. And look at the end of verse 63, and they all wondered. And immediately his mouth, that Zechariah, was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke what? Blessing God. And now look at what happens with the neighbors. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. As if a debate or, or, or a circumcision party is not odd enough, the debate that breaks out at the circumcision party is odd as well. Now, it's always a tricky thing trying to decide what is going to be the name of a baby, but normally it's not your neighbors that come into your house and fight with you over what your name, you're going to name your child. There might be family loyalties or grandparents or others that you think, oh, I want to honor these or whatever, but, but you, you, you wrestle over it that way. But the neighbors coming into the house and saying, oh, you've got to name your baby this, that's entirely different. But here's what Luke is wanting us to grasp. There's not just great importance in these two births in Luke 1. The birth of John, but overshadowing it and shining above it, the birth of Jesus, who we'll see next week. There's not just great importance in God's promises through these coming babies. There's great importance that we must see in how we respond to these promises, how we respond to Jesus. Now, it's understandable that the neighbors assumed that the baby would be named after his father because the idea of not naming a male son and likely the only male child of their family, the idea of not naming him after his father and allowing the family name to continue on, that, was, that would be quite preposterous. This is why they were shocked and confused. But Elizabeth and Zechariah had a higher allegiance than just family name. They had been told by God what their baby would be named. 
They were debtors to mercy. He had reached down and grabbed hold of them. They were transformed entirely beholden to God's grace at work in them. And we see Zechariah in verse 64. He who was struck deaf and apparently mute. His tongue is loose. His muteness is lifted. And in verse 64, Zechariah re-enters the scene and immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. Now, I don't want to write off the neighbors who objected and questioned because by the end of this dialogue, they are realizing that something of great significance is happening, though perhaps they aren't fully grasping what that is yet. This something is in line with God's supernatural works divinely acting in an undeniable manner for the sake of His people. And they hear, they know that something here is going on. You see in verse 65, what happens? And fear came on all their neighbors. Word spread throughout all the country, hill country of Judea. And they, held, they laid these sayings up in their heart and asking what this child will be for the hand of the Lord was with him. And so the neighbors are on their way to seeing the significance of this baby. But Zechariah and Elizabeth are further down the road, seeing the significance of God who keeps His promises and who shows us that salvation demands authentic faith. Not just lip service, but life-altering trust and obedience. Now, truth faith is not something that we just cast out into the waters of the universe and hope we hook something. True faith is placed in something. In fact, true faith can be quite small. What is it Jesus said elsewhere about faith that is even as small as a mustard seed? So this is not a call to have great faith. It is a call to have true faith. In fact, you can have great faith, but it be wrongly placed, and it be terrible. So where does true faith rest? This is what we see secondly. True or authentic faith is secondly, our salvation is anchored in the faithfulness of God. Verses 67 to 75. Fresh off having his muteness lifted, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and voices this beautiful prophecy of praise, blessing God for His faithfulness in working the salvation of His people. As you see the story unfold in the earliest verses here of our passage, you see Zechariah and Elizabeth looking with their eyes set upon God, and then you start to see the neighbors as their faces start to turn. Uh, imagine a scene from a movie where, where you're seeing the reactions of, of the actors or the, of, of the individuals before you see what they're reacting to. Like imagine like some big like, like, like spaceship invading the earth and you see like the face is just filling, filling with terror and shadow and all these things happening. And then finally the camera turns and it shows you what's coming. Zechariah and Elizabeth have had, the, 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 the neighbors are confused by their reactions and then they hear this explanation. They start to turn. They start to see. It, says, it tells us that they were filled with fear for the hand of the Lord was upon him, this baby. And now Zechariah does the work of grabbing the camera and turning it so that we may hear his 
prophecy of praise. And we might see this God who has upended his heart. And has turned him from this priest serving in the temple who did not believe. Was going through the motions, waiting out the clock until he hit retirement age. But has turned him from this one to now a heart transformed by the faithfulness of God. Our salvation is anchored in the faithfulness of God. How is this faithfulness shown to us? How is it visible for us today? Well, if you look at this prophecy, verse 68 and 78, kind of bookends of this prophecy, both feature some of the same explanation. In verse 68, it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Verse 78, Zechariah says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So you have this language of visitation. Now this is not visitation like, hey, may I come over to your house later today. This denotes a a, a form of, of divine intervention. A turning the world upside down. An entering into a dark and bleak world that light may burst forth. That hearts that do not trust, that hearts that do not believe may be brought to life through the divine visitation of God. Now you see this reference in verse 68, for He has visited and redeemed His people. And we get this idea of this physical entrance into the world and see the fear that comes upon people even even in the baby coming taking on the the lowliest human form, born to a poor teenage virgin girl, this is the kind of thing that turns the earth on its axis. And now if you read through this, you would, and, and just note it, you would see Zechariah is praising God not for the birth of his son, but for the one who is greater than his son who will come. In fact, in verse 76, this is the only place where he directly addresses his own son. The rest of his prophecy, it's like he's holding his son in his arms, but he's praising God. And then in verse 76, he turns and says something to his son. And then praises God with him. So Zechariah is praising God for the entrance of God himself into human history. And this is the most consequential thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. Bar none, no questions asked. There is no thing greater. The toppling of the Roman Empire, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, world wars, the invention of nuclear weapons, they are like paper planes thrown by an eight-year-old that fly for three feet before crashing, while the coming of Jesus is as if it is a 747 jumbo jet hurtling down the runway. And there are echoes of God's gracious, redeeming work of the people of Israel in Zechariah's prophecy of praise. To redeem is to atone for, to pay the penalty for the sins of His people. This has echoes of the Old Testament exodus. The people of Israel, redeemed by God's divine intervention. Remember the miracles that He performed in the exodus. 
miracles he performed in rescuing his people out of the slavery of Egypt. And you would see that in this prophecy of praise where he mentions twice uh, in, in, in this prophecy how he rescues his people from their enemies. And so you read this and you remember back to the Old Testament Exodus and you remember God's divine intervention and you remember how did God ultimately rescue his people? It was through the blood of a lamb. And what Zechariah is starting to see is that redemption is going to come again through the blood of a lamb. And this is what Luke wants you and I to know as well. He wants us to trace even from this little baby prophesied of, anticipated, born. That this little baby who would come would ultimately become the lamb who would pay for the sins of the people. And he shows us this. Verse 69, he references how he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This horn, this this Old Testament language uh, denotes like a mighty animal. Where is the strength of a mighty animal? It's in its horn. I don't know why I'm putting a horn here. I have a unicorn in my mind. Those aren't real. Like We'll we'll say here. Um, Well, rhinoceros, right? Okay, never mind. Uh, A horn on a mighty animal was its strength, its might. I don't know a lot about rodeos. But I know in dealing with those mighty 2,000, 2,500 pound bulls, you don't want the horns. The horn of the Lord Jesus. He is our strength. He is our salvation. He is our strong tower. He is our place of refuge, our place where redemption is accomplished. And that he has come in the house of his servant David. Remember David, the king of Israel, the heart of his people. And the people of Israel were at one time enjoying a kingdom full of protections and blessings of a king who loved them, who gave of himself for them, who in his sovereign rule ensured their protection and their well-being as a good sovereign king can. But even human kings, even limited by human sinful nature, their reach, their grasp can only go so far. They had gone from a people who had built a great temple under the reign of David to a people who had worshipped at temple, yet, yet now they are under their Roman occupiers. Previously, they had endured deportation and exile. Their nation had been left in ruins. And God promises what? To raise up salvation through one who would come in the house of David. He said He would do this in verse 70 and 71 as He spoke by the mouths of prophets of old as you heard even in Amos 9 in our Scripture reading this morning. Do you remember that one would come from the booth of David? It says in verse 71 that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. You can hear the yearning, the desire for this to be true as Zechariah not only references David, but references Abraham. Way back in the book of Genesis. In fact, pause here. So you hear the yearning. And you hear Zechariah. His, 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 his life has been changed. Dating back from earlier in Luke 1. 
from nine months prior to now, something significant has happened in Zechariah. And you might be sitting there today, and you might be saying, yeah, Stephen, I, I get this idea that God keeps his promises, but I need something significant for me to hold on to. Don't see any miraculous babies going to be born here today. What Zechariah has to show you is the testimony of thousands of years of God's holy word. What this baby who has come has done has just served as one more level of authenticating the claims and the promises of God's Word. And if that is understood, what this allows, what this enables you to do as you look for any kind of foothold to grab hold of for the promises of God for you to cling to, You can see in verse 72 to 74, he, he showed the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. You might miss it. But if you were to rewind to Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, you see the establishment of God's covenant with Abram and then Abraham you would see that God promises to make Abraham's descendants, those who have the sureness of God's love and grace set upon them, He promises to make His descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And what Zechariah is wisely showing us, what Scripture reveals to us, is all of God's promises to His covenant people are grounded in and fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ who has come. Therefore, for you to know that the Lord has numbered you, dear Christian, that the Lord has set His faithfulness upon your heart, that the Lord has promised not to turn his face away from you in your despair. That the Lord has promised that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Just like no matter how hard you tried, you would not be able to, grab, to, to, to lasso a star out of the sky. The Lord has sown your soul to Christ. So what he would have for you to see as you wonder are the promises of God for me is the faithfulness of God still true. He would say, look at the baby. Look at the baby because the same promises Zechariah believed when he saw the baby. Those promises are for you. These are promises that we might serve Him without fear. As verse 70, 75 says, that we might serve Him 
in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Jesus is the king come from the line of David. He's the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham that God promised. And I want you to see one more thing before we move on to the third and final aspect of our salvation that we must see here that has been wonderfully prepared for us. Just take a cursory glance through Zechariah's prophecy of praise. Do you see how all that he says that God has done is recorded in past tense? This is no translation error. Zechariah was not a poor speaker who did not understand tenses and subject-verb agreement and basic sentence structure. No, Zechariah has come to realize that the promises of God are as sure as if they have already happened, even if they have not. He has gone from unbelief to belief that is so certain that he speaks of it rightly as if it has already been accomplished. And maybe your eyes don't just need to look at the baby this morning to see the faithfulness of God, but maybe your eyes need to look at the old priest who in the temple said, God, I think I believe you, but I can't trust you. I think I worship you, but this is a bridge too far. And now this old priest is standing here exalting God in praise for his faithfulness. Maybe you need to see the baby and the old priest. And here's what you need to understand. God is in the business of revealing his faithfulness to his servants who struggle to believe. There's not an A team behind the scenes There's not the special forces of the church that he uses to get the really important things done. He delights in using the weaknesses of his people that his power may be made visible. So your weaknesses in believing, your weaknesses in trusting, your weaknesses in in being confident that he will accomplish his good work in your life no matter what your days hold, no matter how many days you have left, He delights in using you, dear Christian. May Zechariah be a reminder for us, not only that God keeps His promises, but God promises to use His weak servants. And finally, Our salvation demands authentic faith. Our salvation is grounded in the faithfulness of God. And thirdly, our salvation is grounded in the tender mercy of our God. Verses 76 to 80. Zechariah now turns his eyes from God, whom he has been praising. In verse 76, he turns his eyes upon his newborn son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Let's pause right here. This little baby, John, known in our, our Bibles and the Gospels as John the Baptist. 
He would travel throughout Israel. He would, he would preach a message of repentance to the people. Not unlike Old Testament prophets that we see recorded throughout our Old Testaments. Urging the people to forsake their sins of which they presume upon the, faithfulness, the, the, the graciousness of God. But urging them to come and taste the true grace of God that is grounded in the people recognizing their sin and repenting of it and finding new life, finding replenishment through the sacrifice of the Lamb, through the grace of God to them. And so John is going going to travel throughout Israel proclaiming this message, urging repentance upon those who must repent, giving knowledge of salvation to his people. How? Verse 77, in the forgiveness of their sins. Let me just pause here. This grace, this faithfulness, this kindness, this provision of God is available to all via the road of forgiveness of sins. And the Lord Jesus has come that your sins no matter how plentiful they may be, that they may be atoned for in His cross. If you have not come to the Lord Jesus through faith, even faith so small, but in a strong Savior, I urge you to do this through repenting of your sins. Even now, just quietly in your seat. And as you, after you do this, if, if you do this, if you want to talk about this more, I would love to speak with you after our service. There's no important thing, more important thing if you are not yet a follower of Jesus that you could give thought to this morning than this. This way, this knowledge of salvation for God's people is through the forgiveness of sins. And may I encourage you, if you're wrestling over this, or for all of us, dear church, whether you've been a Christian for 10, 10 minutes or 10 decades, May we be reminded of what our salvation is grounded in. What is this forgiveness of sins rooted in? Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. You read passages sometimes from the Old Testament prophets and you're not seeing a lot of what you think is tender mercy. But it actually is. How often the prophets repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly urge the people to turn from their sins. And God extends them decades and even centuries before His justice and His judgment must come. The impetus for God sending His Son to us is not some plan B. He did not look down and say, oh goodness, I really thought that sacrifice system in the Old Testament temple, I I thought that would work. No, God in His divine wisdom orchestrated all the events of our redemption, including the sending of His Son, all the way back in eternity past. And He did all of this. The motivation behind it, the driving force in it, is the tender mercy that He has for us. And that tender mercy is exemplified how? Look how the latter part of verse 78 describes it. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high. How many of you saw the sunrise this morning? A few of you. It was gorgeous. It was one of those mornings. I know some of you are more of a sunset kind of people. But the, the darkness of night slowly started to lift. And then as it started to lift, the the purples and the pinks and the oranges just started to pierce across the sky in in, in vibrant splendor. 
John, this prophet who is coming, is going to be this one who's going to start to push back the darkness. And yet now, this other one, Jesus, is going to come and he's going to be the sunrise that is going to shine a light on the world that helps it to see in ways it has never seen before. Jesus is this one who has come. And by him we see the beauty of God and the grace of God to us in ways that we did not and could not understand apart from Jesus. And Jesus is the one who has come that by him and through him we see ways in which our hearts are unlocked to love, towards peace, towards understanding and receiving grace and mercy that we would have never expected before. And it, uh, they, our hearts are only unlocked by the work of Jesus accomplishing our redemption, by that sun shining and breaking through and, lo- and, and unlocking our cold, dead, fleshly hearts and making them full of the love of God. The baby who would come Jesus would give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, as verse 79, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you sit in darkness? Do you sit in the shadow of death? Do you need peace? I know I do. We are transported from that darkness to watch the glories of God who enters our world by no accident with the impetus and the motivation of His tender mercy. And with the drive and the conviction and the resolve to do so that is so sure, that is so committed that He sends His only begotten Son. And He does not just send Him in order that He might teach us. He does not just send Him in order that He might show us. He sends Him in order that He might redeem us. That He might atone for our sins. That he might eliminate the need for lambs to be sacrificed yearly. That his son might become the perfect and final lamb. That he might take upon us and free us from the burdens of our sins. And from the burdens of our lack of peace. From the burdens of our anxiety and our worry that cripple our hearts. And that he might set before us the Savior yet again. And might show us in Christ, you belong to me. And in Christ, nothing can take you away from me. And in Christ, you no longer have to sit in darkness. But in Christ, you see the light of my love shine brightly upon you. Yes, our salvation, dear Christians, 
It is no accident. It has been wonderfully prepared for us. Because God is tender in his mercy. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you have not stumbled upon us and we have not stumbled upon some scheme that is too good to be true, but you have divinely brought us to yourself through your son. And so, Lord, ground our hearts in the hope of Christ in the sureness of his heart that beats with tender mercy and his smile that pierces our souls. And as we need to believe and to cling and to trust in your faithfulness to keep your promises, let us look to Christ. Let us not turn our eyes away from Christ, but let us be sure that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete. It's in Christ we pray all of this. Amen.